Good evening. It's a pleasure to be with you this evening as uh, we gather for this first night of our parish mission delivered by Father Jeffrey Starkovich. Uh, just uh, a few notes uh, about uh, th this evening. Uh, uh, some people have asked about uh, uh, the, 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 an indulgence which is, uh, which is offered at the attendance of a parish mission. And so I uh, just wanted to give you all uh, the, the rundown on the potentiality to, re for, to receive a plenary indulgence uh, at the attendance of a parish mission. And so uh, what is required is attendance at a significant portion of uh, the parish mission. Um, also, it's required uh, for you to uh, receive the sacrament of reconciliation, receive the sacrament of the Eucharist, to pray for the intentions of the Holy Father, and to receive the solemn blessing at the end of the parish mission. And then the biggest one, right, uh, to have uh, a desire to be totally detached from sin. <laughs> That's the hard one, right? So, uh, but the church does offer that indulgence to all the faithful that fulfill those aforementioned uh, marks with regard to uh, attendance at a parish mission. And so certainly it's my hope and the church's hope and the Lord's hope that we all uh, meet all of those requirements and we all receive that great gift from the church of a plenary indulgence uh, on the attendance, uh, on the occasion of the attendance of a parish mission. And um, as you most probably met Father Jeff at Mass, all the Masses yesterday and Saturday uh, for all of our weekend Masses, uh, you know that uh, there is a collection that was taken up in the second collection at our Sunday Masses, uh, and also the baskets are set out if you didn't get an opportunity to make a donation. Uh, Father Jeffrey uh, is uh, preaching this appeal, right? I mean, this mission uh, as a gift to us, and as a gift to his parish community that was devastated by Hurricane Laura as they're trying to rebuild, St. Peter Parish uh, is going to give all of the proceeds that we get from our mission uh, and from uh, the second collection yesterday uh, to uh, Father Jeff's parish of St. Pius X in Ragley, which is in the Diocese of Lake Charles. Uh, there are uh, opportunities all throughout this mission to attend the Sacrament of Reconciliation. Uh, Father Cooper uh, is in the confessional that I normally use. Um, uh, I'm sorry, not Father Cooper, Father Cavalier. Uh, Father, Father Robert Cavalier uh, is in that confessional that I normally use. Uh, Father Okafor is in his regular confessional. I will be in the sacristy. And then after the mission's completed, if there's anyone that desires to attend the Sacrament of Reconciliation with Father Jeffrey, uh, he'll be here at the presider's chair and you'll have the opportunity to do that. Um, and so I think those are all of the housekeeping uh, tidbits. And so just a bit of introduction uh, of my dear friend, Father Jeff Starkovich, uh, as we begin. Uh, Father Jeffrey uh, is a priest of the Diocese of Lake Charles, the pastor of St. Pius X in Ragley, Louisiana. Father Jeffrey uh, was uh, ordained in the year 2011, June 11th, 2011, uh, and uh, uh, he brings with him uh, many years of, uh, of, of, uh, of experience as a priest and a shepherd of souls from the Diocese of Lake Charles. He studied at St. Joseph Abbey for four years 
and then he did his uh, master's uh, in the his, his theological studies uh, at the North American College in Rome, and he was, he was ordained then uh, in his home diocese of Lake Charles in 2011. And so, uh, without further ado, Father Jeffrey will uh, introduce himself further. We give to you our mission presenter for the week. Thank you, Father Brew, and it's certainly a great joy uh, to be with you all. Why don't we begin in prayer? Please stand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Divine and Heavenly Father, in the season of Lent, we come before you to prepare our hearts to receive the wonderful grace of your Son as we prepare to enter into the mystery of his Paschal mystery, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, which won for us our redemption, helping us to turn away from sin and be faithful to the gospel. But Lord, we know that in these times that we live in, there is such a need to proclaim the good news that our Lord has conquered all of our enemies and won for us the gift of salvation. Help us to take seriously this role of evangelization, of proclaiming the saving grace of your Son. And Lord, we ask you to be with us over these three days as we survey the times in which we live, that we may have the boldness to announce the truth in great love, following in the footsteps of your great saints and apostles, that we too may bring people to the glory of your name. We ask all of this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. When Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said in reply, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus. Please be seated. When Father Brew and I were speaking a number of months ago about the possibility of me coming to give a parish mission, I asked him, what is a topic that you're, you feel the people of St. Peter uh, need to reflect on the most? And the topic that we landed on is one near and dear to my heart as a priest. This is the topic of evangelization, to proclaim the good news of the Lord to everyone. And several years ago, um, a priest recommended something to me, 
Uh, and so I'm going to share some thoughts, and I'll come back to a little book. But the location and the company of Jesus in the Scriptures matters for a deep understanding that whenever we read sacred Scripture, we listen attentively to a number of the details uh, because location and context is really important for us, too. If I ask you to join me for a Mardi Gras parade, we just finished Mardi Gras a couple of weeks ago, uh, you probably could picture this in your mind, right? Mardi Gras, it's something that we all know, it's something familiar, it has a particular place and a particular context, right? So, picture Mardi Gras parade. You got it? Can you imagine a Mardi Gras parade? Maybe uh, we're on Columbia Street or Jefferson right here in Covington. Maybe you envision yourself on Esplanade in New Orleans, right? Those make sense, right? Right. What if I told you we were going to a Mardi Gras parade in Vermont with Bernie Sanders? Why are you laughing? All right. What if you did a Mardi Gras parade in Alaska with Sarah Palin? Why are you laughing, right? This isn't something that immediately would make sense to us, right? Because the context, the location, the place, and the people you're with make a huge difference in what we are trying to achieve. This is what Jesus is doing when he brings the apostles to Caesarea Philippi, right? The place and the people that he's with matter. At this point in the gospel, Jesus is on his mission to the city of Jerusalem. He's on his journey. But on the way there, he takes a 20-mile detour to go to Caesarea Philippi. And in the days when you walked, 20 miles is a long way out of the way. But it's there that Jesus wants to ask the apostles, who do you say that I am? So why? Why Caesarea Philippi? Why this long detour? First, Caesarea Philippi was the location of a cave that had a deep pool of water. Inside this cave was this pool that the ancients couldn't measure the bottom of. They thought, uh, because of this, that it was the gates to the netherworld. And in fact, it was so frightening because every once in a while, completely randomly, water would come shooting out of the cave, right? And so for the ancients, it was believed that this cave and the pool inside of it and all the water was believed to be the actual gates to the netherworld. But then right next to this cave uh, on the side of it was an enormous statue of the god Pan. And when we think about Mardi Gras, you'll often even see the god Pan depicted because the god Pan was linked with debauchery, with drunkenness, with um, entertainment. Indeed, even around the worship of the god Pan was a fertility cult. And to be in the presence of God, this half-man, half-goat who played a lute and a flute, uh, was scandalous to the Jews, right? Because Pan represented sin. It represented the world. It represented the flesh, as St. Paul would come to say. Finally, 
above this cave uh, built into the mountain and where this statue of the god Pan was, on top of this hill, on top of this mountain, the Romans built a fortification. In fact, Herod had built, uh, had kind of refreshed and built this fortification. Why? Because he wanted to show that the Romans and the power that they had accumulated was even more powerful than the gates of hell, right? And that they were even more powerful than the Roman gods. Indeed, Caesar considered himself to be God. So now we understand the context. Jesus brings the apostles 20 miles out of the way, on the way to Jerusalem, where in front of the gates of hell, in front of all the sin of the flesh, and in front of the power of the world in politics and human power, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? The context matters. And so you can imagine that the apostles get it when they're standing there, right? This is what this means. And so when Peter says, you are the Christ, he does so in front of hell, of sin, and the world. If you ask anyone in their 20s, who's about 20 years uh, old, what religion they are, these days you are more likely to encounter the answer, no religion, than Catholic. Among all age groups, at least 14% of Americans currently describe their religion as nothing in particular. And so we call them nuns. We finally have more nuns in the world, but they're the wrong kind, right? Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E. We can't jump to the conclusion, though, that people who describe themselves as no religion are atheist or agnostic. In fact, 50% of the, of the nuns say that they believe in God. 23% openly declare that God cares about them. And at least 20% of the nuns will agree that Jesus died for their sins. However, they do not profess to belong to any practice of organized religion. And so when we even dive deeper into these poll numbers, we see something very interesting. The nuns grow larger for people born after the year 2000 than before. And so what this means is that it's the youngest generation, right? People born since the year 2000 that are leaving the practice of organized religion and abandoning much of the foundation of society faster than anyone in human history. So we can talk about the terrible numbers in our own Catholic church. There's a large number of people who complete RCIA and cease to practice their faith with only a few years. In fact, if you poll people who enter RCIA and become Catholic, the statistical average for when they will cease to practice their Catholic faith is three years from the time that they enter RCIA. Today, I would can probably consider a parish healthy for this time that has half the number of its students confirmed in junior year of high school 
going to mass their senior year of high school, right? A parish which has half of its confirmands going to mass a year later is healthy. A handful of them will show up again in the future to get married in the church. But college and university tends to be the place that students go to bury their faith in the graveyard of modern progressivism. And how often I hear parents lament and say, Father, I just don't get it. My kids were baptized. They made all their sacraments. We went to Mass regularly and we practice our faith. We did everything right. And now my kids are atheists. Or they're a nun. What's going on? So we come back to the question Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? The question for the nuns tends to be met with, does it matter? As much as we talk about a new evangelization or a revival, the future looks pretty bleak, doesn't it? It's exceedingly rare to find a diocese or a parish where more than 20% of Catholics go to Mass on Sunday, meaning on any given Sunday, one in five Catholics are in Mass. Babies are being born that aren't being baptized. Lots of Catholics aren't even being confirmed. Divorce feels like it's more common than marriage and everyday experience. And we're even beginning to abandon the practice of religious funerals. Instead, many would rather have a celebration of life on the side of a lake before we scatter their ashes. And now there's a growing fascination with eco-burials, where we turn the human body into compost by planting it as a tree or a plant. And in fact, this has just been superseded. Uh, The USCCB actually this week issued a document uh, talking about alkaline burial. Have you all heard about this? We're going to take the human body, we're going to turn it into its constitutive elements by dissolving it in an alkaline solution, and then we're going to pour the solution somewhere, right? We're going to turn you into liquid and then pour the water out somewhere, right? The gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. Whew, sometimes it sure feels like it, right? And looking into the future, it doesn't seem like we see a bright spot of hope. This is why our mission tonight is about evangelization over the next few weeks, because the future looks difficult. A few years ago, a priest I know recommended I read a book called From Christendom to Apostolic Mission, Pastoral Strategies for an Apostolic Age. It's this little booklet you can buy on Amazon for about 10 bucks. Um, It's very short, but it's very powerful. uh, the, The author is the University of Mary. The president of the university is Monsignor James Shea. And if you're interested in anything to do with evangelization or the activities of the church, I highly recommend reading it. But knowing that very few people read books anymore, I'm going to read it to you over the course of these three nights and sound like I really know what I'm talking about. Monsignor Shea begins by asking a question, and a very important question. Do you think we live in a Christian culture? Do you think we live in a Christian culture? Then Monsignor goes on to make a startling claim. He says, quote, we are dealing with the first culture in history that was once deeply Christian 
but by a slow process has been consciously ridding itself of its Christian basis. Our society is full of many, including those baptized and raised with some exposure to faith, who believe that they have seen enough of Christianity to see that it has little to offer them. What does that mean? I think Monsignor Shea is exactly right. Many people feel they grasp the basics of our faith. They believe it to be rather unimportant or without worth. And so, not finding any value in it, they just stop practicing. They don't think there's a whole lot to it. And so the question that we ask ourselves, this is the reason why you're at a parish mission, how do we invite them to come back? But before we do that, we need to understand the challenge. So I want you to think of someone that you know who has been divorced and currently is divorced for the last few years. Think of somebody in your mind, using your imagination, who has been divorced for a few years. Got it? Now, I want you to give me a plan on how to tell them to go back to their former spouse. because that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're not talking about the conversion of pagans, people who have never heard the name of Jesus. We are talking about people who once had faith and have divorced themselves from it. C.S. Lewis describes this brilliantly. He says that our time is the difference between a man trying to woo a young maiden and a man trying to win a cynical divorcee back to her previous marriage. Many have divorced themselves from Jesus and the church, and we are trying to tell them to go back to that past relationship. How do we do that? Right? That's an incredibly daunting and uncomfortable task. How do we do it? The answer is simple. We have to help them fall in love. If you want somebody to return, we help them to fall in love. But where does love come from, and how do we live in love as human beings? That one of the most important places we use love is the imagination. Think about the imagination. It's something that we have, which is really important. What is our imagination? It's the human capacity we have to maintain in our mind something not immediately present to our surrounding. Right? The imagination is our ability to keep something in our mind which is not immediately present to us. Right? I can ask you to imagine Mardi Gras parade. Right? You can visualize it immediately. You can picture it with color and beads and green and gold and purple. I could ask you to remember the last parade you went to. These are not immediately available to your senses right now, but you know it. You can picture it. You can remember the people and the place you were. See, the animals, as we look around the rest of the world, are limited generally to their sensory perceptions. Humans, though, can do something that the animals can't. We can not only recall previous sensory perceptions, we can put those together and combine them into entirely new things. We can make whole worlds just in our imagination. 
Think of the worlds of fiction, things like Narnia or C.S. Lewis, the world of Narnia from C.S. Lewis, or what Tolkien created in The Lord of the Rings. We can hold the past and envision a future completely in our mind using invisible realities. And so what happens is that with the human imagination, we have the ability to take all of these ideas, all of these thoughts, all of these uh, different things that we once experienced, combine them together, imagine a new one, and tell a story. And that story can actually come together for us to build something we call narratives, right? A narrative. Monsignor Shea goes on to describe something very important. A narrative becomes a fundamental basis from which we make decisions. This is going to get a little bit technical, so just stick with me. A narrative is a set of first principles from which we act. And these build up into this idea we call a narrative that helps to direct the way we live and make decisions. For example, when you're in love, you allow that love to dominate what you think and how you make decisions, right? especially if you're just infatuated, you're in that first stage of love, which is very fun and exciting, right? You find yourself daydreaming. This is music, right? This is where a lot of music comes from, this idea of being in love. But let's leave love to the side. Let's talk about a different narrative. Let's talk about politics. Everybody's very, yeah, Father Jeff's going to talk about politics in church. Let's talk about a different narrative, politics. For example, we live in the United States of America, right? And what do we believe in? What is our narrative? It's freedom and the ability to direct ourself in freedom because we live in a democracy. We live in a society which believes, and our fundamental narrative is that the people have a right to govern themselves. And so, if someone comes and proposes a completely different narrative, let's go back to an absolute monarchy, all right, or not, right? What if somebody came along and proposed that the United States go back to an absolute monarchy with a king? How would, the, how would the people of the United States react? This is completely incomprehensible to who we are, right? This is why we fought the Revolutionary War. Yet most people can't explain what democracy is or what's the difference between a democracy and a constitutional republic. We can't describe, most people can't describe or uh, define what the intricacies are this but we know that it's our narrative. It's the way that we live. We elect our representatives. We vote on rules and laws. We abide by a constitution. This is just who we are. And so when we have these narratives, what's important for us is that we think about them, that if we are to truly be an intelligent people and we want to be intelligent Catholics, we have to think about our narrative. And then when we think about the narrative, we have to ask some questions and begin to clarify it. This is what we do in education, right? This is why you go to school. This is why you go to school and learn how to think. The idea of Western education, and in fact, a liberal education, 
is to set the mind free, literally to liberate the mind. That the idea is that an education liberates the mind from an unexamined assumption that makes a narrative incoherent or seemingly irrational. It's to ask fundamental questions to clarify what do I think and why. We look at everything that we assumed our entire life. We begin to think very deeply about it. And then as we think more deeply, we realize, okay, let's, what, what is holding it together? What makes it cohesive? And as we do that, we find things that don't make sense and we try and push them away to clarify something which is strong. And in fact, this is what the church does. This is what the church says is a fundamental role in the life of faith, is to allow our reason, our ability to know something, to be enlightened by our faith. Faith in the Christian vision enlightens and guides us to the narrative that God has. So, we're going to take a look at the narrative for Christianity, and we're going to point to two different narratives that have existed over the course of uh, history. This is very simple. Don't worry. I had to get through a little technical thing, but let's take a look at what happens in the Bible. We see two different ways that the church has operated. We're going to take a look at when St. Paul and Barnabas go to this area called Lystra, in Acts chapter 14. When Paul gets to Lystra, he's speaking to people who do not think like him at all. Paul is a Jew, and he's speaking to people who are Greeks, right? He is a Jew. They're Greek pagans. They believe in the Greek gods, not necessarily the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So Paul preaches to them about Jesus. And after St. Paul has preached to them about Jesus, he heals a man who is crippled. And so, when they see this crippled man who is healed, they immediately begin to think about everything that they know. And they say, oh, Paul, Barnabas, you must be Zeus and Hermes. And now they start to bow down and worship Paul and Barnabas as if they're Zeus and Hermes. They want to start burning sacrifices to them. And St. Paul and Barnabas have to, hey, everybody, time out. We are not Greek gods. In fact, we're coming to tell you about a whole nother God, the real God, right? It was difficult for them to grasp what St. Paul meant as a Christian. And so his preaching was a challenge. The people didn't understand what he was talking about. But at the beginning of Acts, we see something different. St. Peter, after Pentecost, goes out onto the street, animated by the Holy Spirit, and preaches to a huge crowd of people. But what he's preaching to are the Jews, not Greek pagans, but he's speaking to the Jews. And so when he says God, everybody says, oh yeah, we know who God is. St. Saint Peter can go on to talk about heaven and hell and sin, repentance, prophecy, covenant, the Messiah. These were all things that everybody knew. Peter's words then resonate in their hearts and their minds because it was delivered from a similar narrative as theirs. The issue was simply, did the crowd believe that Jesus was the Messiah? 
And so, in one sermon, animated by the Holy Spirit, St. Peter converts 3,000 people to Christianity in one sermon. I'm trying to keep a few hundred of you awake for the next 30 minutes. They could quickly become faithful Christians without needing an entirely different narrative, right? And so the preaching seemed to be easy, quick, and efficient. And so we see what we're going to call two modes, an apostolic mode and a Christendom mode. In the apostolic mode, this is when the church must preach in a society which has completely conflicting things to what the church says. This is like St. Paul preaching to pagans. He's preaching in a very, very different world than what everybody knows. But in Christendom, the church is preaching to people where Christianity has already provided the narrative, right? The foundation. It's the soil out of which everybody's basic assumptions are made. This is like Peter preaching in Jerusalem. The basics were already there. He just must purify it. So let's talk about Christendom. When Christianity provides the overall narrative in a society, we call it Christendom. We're not talking about a confessional state where Christianity is the official religion of the government, maybe like uh, medieval England or the Papal States or the Holy Roman Empire. Instead, we simply mean a culture and a society which agrees with the imaginative vision provided by Christianity, even if the politics, government, or culture may be different. And so what happens in a Christendom society? This comes about as success from the church's missionary activity. There's a great alignment with the truth of God. The culture thinks like the church does. There is an overarching vision of humanity similar to what God wants for us. And so the primary need becomes maintenance. We've gotten all the foundations right. We just need to kind of keep it going. Christianity seems to hold important positions but the goal is to simply purify the belief of believers, to purify the faith. But what are the challenges in Christendom? Many become lukewarm in their pursuit and practice of the faith because it's everywhere, right? It's easy to be lukewarm in Christendom because everybody's Christian. Christian devotion loses radical character. Everyone's doing it, so it's not that weird to be Christian. The great sin of Christianity in this idea is hypocrisy, wherein somebody pretends to be more Christian and focused on God than they actually are. And so a temptation arises. The temptation for the church is to focus on this world, material and success. Maybe the church is even a career path. Success is, me is measured by worldly terms. How many people came to my mission? Priesthood becomes a job, not a mission. Bishops and priests just manage a well-oiled machine rather than seeing themselves as fighting a cosmic battle of the invisible spiritual world to keep the devil from winning souls to hell. Leaders in Christendom can often just become conflict-avoiding administrators, rather than apostles who proclaim spiritual truths. 
the faith becomes reduced to visible expressions instead of an inward and spiritual reality. And so what begins to happen? Over time, in a Christendom culture, the church herself is seen as one among many cultural institutions that are trying to make human life better. The church is not seen for who she really is. In her mission to recreate the human race to be saved from death and slavery by our Lord Jesus Christ. Missionaries become people who go to a far off land to do work, not here, because we've already done it. What happens in an apostolic? Let's look at the, apos- the opposite, though. In an apostolic time, we see that the church is not dominant. The church is not the dominant influence. And so the need is not for maintenance because the church sees that what she must do is very different from her culture, from everything around her. Because of this, the cost of being a Christian is high. Why? Because there's less hypocrisy. The life of faith is more evident because to be a Christian becomes hard and countercultural. And so, priests and bishops have to have greater purity in their mission. They have to hold themselves to a higher standard of holiness. Martyrdom and suffering become a real possibility. When you look around the world, the society is filled with doctrinal and moral error. There's a material advantage to even make peace with a non-Christian majority because it becomes hard to be not a Christian. Institutions are harder to found and keep healthy. There's just fewer resources that the church has available. Explaining the faith is exhausting. It seems the more you teach, the more that nobody seems to grasp. So what's the challenge? Many who measure the strength of the church begin to measure, they think they want to measure the church by visible manifestations. And by doing that, they're going to be discouraged. Why? Because the numbers are really low, right? Mass attendance is low. The attendance at things goes down. And so the temptation in the apostolic age is actually not hypocrisy. It's cowardice. It's to be a coward because the cost of discipleship is too high. People in Christendom are tempted to profess more faith than they have because that's what society wants. But in an apostolic time, we want to profess less faith than we have because there's an advantage out there to having less faith. As a result, what happens? We just let the world go to hell. We just say, everybody out there, Jesus can't save. It's not worth doing. Or we become dominated by fear. And so what must the church do? The church first must pray. She must look to the Lord and say, Lord, what is this time? Because what we're going to find is that this is not new. The church has existed and thrived 
in both an apostolic time and in Christendom. We have been here before, but the timing of this is what's new. We have gone from an apostolic age into Christendom, where the world wasn't Christian and the church made it so. But now for the first time, we're going from a Christian world back to an apostolic age. What does that mean? There were people who had faith who have lost it. There are people who once believed in Jesus who have divorced themselves from the church. And what we want to do as apostles and disciples is to bring them back. And so if we are going to be effective, the first thing we need to do is understand the narrative. What are the underlying assumptions from which everybody in the world, including us, is acting? And so we see these two predominant narratives. The apostolic age, the church preaches the gospel to the world that doesn't know it and resists it actively. And there's Christendom, when the society is familiar with Christianity and can act quickly because of it. Today, and in this mission, I am proposing that we are leaving Christendom behind and headed headlong into an apostolic era. People are leaving Jesus behind, and what we want to do is to propose the faith to them to help them to see that we're talking about something that they've never really known. And so let's go back to the opening gospel. How did Jesus do this himself? Who do you say that the Son of Man is? Jesus made the specific intention to bring the apostles to a place. He used something visual. He used the gates of hell. He used the god Pan. He used a fortification from the Roman Empire to help the apostles grasp what he meant. Who do you say that I am? For serious disciples of Jesus who practice their faith, the question is everything. But it's not just a question in a book. It's a question in real life. It looks like the gates of hell are prevailing in the world when we don't answer the question like St. Peter. St. Peter, though, understands his narrative. He understands the context. And so when he says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, St. Peter understands that he's standing up to hell. He's standing up to the worship of false gods and sin and debauchery. He understands that he's standing up to a political power and the brutality of the Roman Empire. That's the faith that Jesus built the church upon. And so for the next two nights, now that we've established the foundation, we're going to look at what does this mean, right? Tonight was just a little theoretical. What does this mean to be in an apostolic era or a Christendom era? And we're going to try and answer, like St. Peter, how do we do this? If we want to change 
the culture around us. If we want to bring somebody back to Jesus, we must understand their narrative too. And we must provide them in their imagination with a person that they can fall in love with, that they've once divorced. And that's what we're going to try to do tomorrow. We're going to look at the narrative that the world lives in and why it's hard to have faith today. And we're going to see how a real education in the person of Jesus helps us to answer that question, who do you say that I am? So that in everything we do in our parish life, including here at St. Peter, we may help every person who graces the doors and every person we meet to fall in love with Jesus more today than they knew him yesterday. Amen. Please stand. Divine and Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight in front of a world which lacks love. We come before you tonight in front of a world which wants so quickly to forget who you are. But as we have gathered, we do so in deep faith and with a deep longing that we wish to fall in love with you more deeply and we wish to propose to the world who you are. And so, Heavenly Father, we ask you to send out your Holy Spirit among us so that we may love you and know you more perfectly. Be with us in these nights and in the days to come that this season of Lent may be a time for us to examine all that we know of you so that we may love you more today than we did yesterday and love you more tomorrow than we do today. This we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. As Father Bruce said uh, at the beginning of the mission, um, I have experienced a lot of things in the parish, uh, and so we talked about it a little bit, but uh, some people were asking me about my parish, so uh, I made a couple of little brochures if you want to see. Uh, they're in the back of the church uh, where you could see a couple of photos of different things, uh, and I just want to say thank you for everything that you've done for St. Pius X in Ragley as we ask God to help us rebuild our church campus so that in the area of Ragley, we can be a light to bring people the love of Jesus. Uh, and so thank you for your support. Uh, as together, though, we ask the Lord to raise up, this is something very important to me, I, w I used to serve as the vocation director for the Diocese of Lake Charles. One of the most important things we need right now in the church is an increase of good and holy priests, right? Those who can be these apostles to announce to the world the good news of Jesus. And so what I'm going to ask you to do right now is we're just going to say a Hail Mary for vocations to the priesthood, uh, and then I'm going to be present up here for confessions uh, as the priests are available for confessions as well. So why don't we ask Our Lady to help raise up more vocations for us uh, in Louisiana and the church as a whole. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll see you tomorrow.
I will stay behind to hear some confessions. Uh, I'll bring up a chair. I'll ask somebody to bring me a chair, uh, and we'll just sit. I'll sit up here.